Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 6. Last week we discussed the church's mission to make the gospel known in all the earth. It just took a couple of weeks, these two weeks, to do something out of Hebrews for the purpose of reminding ourselves of the gospel and the church's mission. And today we're going to look at the gospel and Christian unity, or the gospel and the unity of the church. Those two things coming together, it's the gospel mission, the gospel and church today. Um, So we're looking at Ephesians 4 to that end. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray. Father, we ask That as we look at this, your word, written by the Apostle Paul as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit for the church at Ephesus and for the church in every generation, this inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative, all-sufficient word, that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches, that we would know what the head of the church, Jesus Christ, wants for his bride, for his body. That we would understand more and more the gospel in which we've been saved. And that we would live consistently with that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I want to I look at the church's responsibility to walk worthy of her unity in Christ. We hear about this kind of theme fairly continuously um, if you pay much attention to the noise that's out in the world with regard to the church. Jesus prayed in John 17 for the unity of the church. Yet, while Jesus prayed in John 17 for the unity of the church, we have all these theological divisions between one denomination and another. We have Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and Congregationalists. And, you know, I could go on. I have, I just, when I said Baptist, there's a whole bunch of them, right? We have Southern Baptists and American Baptists and General Baptists. And, and anyway, we could just keep going. We imagine, therefore, that Jesus' prayer for the unity of the church has not been answered. And that the way to answer it is typically to pretend that truth no longer matters. Can't we all just get along? See, we need kind of Rodney King to speak into the church's theological division and resolve it. But folks, 
Unity is found in the truth. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, drop down to verse 13. He's just talked about giving the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And in verse 13 he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's not unity of faith in the sense of subjective terms, like we all, we all have the same excitement about Jesus, but that's the unity of the faith, objective, the doctrine that we hold to, the belief that we hold to, the truth that we share, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. Unity is found in the truth. And disunity is brought in by those teaching contrary to the truth. That's why Paul will say, for example, in Romans 16 and verse 17, that the ones causing division among you are those who are teaching doctrines contrary to the truth. They're the divisive ones. They're causing division by teaching doctrines contrary to the truth. And he goes on to say that you're to avoid these people because they are, by their deceitful schemes, trying to deceive the hearts of the naive. So Paul is speaking of there avoiding false teachers, men who do not have the proper Lord and men who do not have the proper gospel. Okay, you say, but, but what about disunity? We can see disunity on the big things. You've denied our triune Lord. You've denied Jesus as the God-man. You've denied the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You've denied that Scripture alone is our authority. Those are the big things, right? Big things. If you deny that, we can see why we would not be united with you because we are not united in the truth. We have a different God, a different gospel, and so there is no unity, so let's not pretend like it's there because it isn't. We get that, but what about when we have disunity on the small things? Like, hey, what happens when we disagree about who the proper recipients of baptism are? What happens when we disagree about what the proper form of church government is? What happens when we disagree Agree about those, um, which the, what is the proper eschatology? In other words, the outworking of all things at the end. What about those things? What about the split between conservative Presbyterians and Baptists? Listen, it's possible to have denominational differences. I want to say this. It's possible to have denominational differences, to remain in local churches that are disagreeable about those issues, committed to the fact that that's what the Bible teaches, and yet still calling each other brothers and in good relationship with one another. It's possible. Listen, why do denominations happen? Denominations happen when liberty or freedom meets biblical disagreement. You have denominations. One way to get rid of them is just to have a state church. None of us are looking for that right now, so, right, because Gavin Newsom would be the head of it. Doesn't sound good? No, thanks. Right? So we're not Presbyterian, but we have good relations with our conservative Presbyterian friends. They are our brothers. They're our brothers. That's still possible to have that kind of unity. 
This this week, Jason and I were down hanging out with some brothers in Christ from the United Reformed Church. We have doctrinal distinctives from them, but there are brothers, and we felt the camaraderie of being brothers, of being united in the truth, though we have some disagreements. It's okay. But I want to drive this discussion away from the disputes between local churches and denominations and sort of bring it into our own living room. Bring it right here. What about unity in our own local church? Jesus prayed for unity among us. And what I want you to understand is that Jesus' prayer was answered. Do you hear me? I want you to stop and consider that for a second. When Jesus in John 17 prayed for unity, God answered his prayer. He's not up in heaven hoping against hope one day. Maybe the Father will answer my prayer for unity. His prayer was answered. We are united to Christ and therefore, by one, therefore to one another by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not hoping that his prayer will be answered. Jesus' prayer is answered. And now Jesus praying that we would live consistently with the unity that we have. Look, look at Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul speaking. Paul is a prisoner for the Lord. He has been imprisoned for the proclamation of the gospel. And notice what he says, therefore. In other words, that word, therefore, is summing up everything that's come in the three chapters prior to this. We're in chapter 4, chapters 1, 2, and 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, now what's he going to say? Urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We are to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. What is the calling to which we've been called? What is it? Well, that, that's a way of summing up all that's been said in Ephesians 1 through 3. In short, we were once those who belonged to the old Adamic, meaning Adam, to the old Adamic fallen world. We were once dead in our sins, slaves to unrighteousness or lawlessness or sin, at enmity with God and under his judgment. That's the old Adamic fallen world. We were once there. What Ephesians 1 through 3 is getting at. However, but now, we have been reconciled in Christ as a gift of the Father by the working of the Holy Spirit through faith. We've been reconciled to Christ. God has lovingly and graciously created a new humanity in his son, Jesus Christ. We're no longer in the old creation under Adam. We've been saved into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We now belong to him. We are now a new creation. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We are now there with where we live. Therefore, we are sojourners wanderers, strangers in this foreign, old creation, Adamic world. 
We no longer belong to that old fallen world that is under God's judgment, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are in the new creation under God's blessing rather than his curse. We're reconciled to God through our union with Christ, and therefore, please hear this, therefore we are, are, present tense, reconciled to one another. We are. Did you hear that? Christ has reconciled all things in himself. He has reconciled you as one people, one body, to God in his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Look down to verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This began a new creation in Christ, a new people in Christ. You're now united to Christ and to his church. And Paul wants you to understand this glorious calling. Look how he prays, verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason... Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? See, he's called you, and Paul wants you to know the hope to which he's called you. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Now look what he says about Jesus, verse 22 of chapter 1. And he put all things under Jesus' feet, under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, you were once dead in your sins, but now you've made, been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is showing his immeasurable grace, his immeasurable riches, mercy to you. That's what he goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. By grace you've been saved. And you were not only saved, forgiven of your sins, declared righteous in Christ, but you were made a new creation in Christ for the purpose of good works. Look down at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We want to walk worthy of this new creation. He has reconciled you to all believers in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he goes on to say in verse 11 and following of chapter 2. When he goes on to say, verse, look at verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's speaking about Jews and Gentiles, two peoples who were religiously and ethnically separate and had hostility toward one another. He's now made us one in his flesh by abolishing... The law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This gospel that Jew and Gentile would be united in Christ is the gospel mystery that Paul now proclaims. It's the thing that was partially revealed in the Old Testament, but fully revealed in the new, and which Paul is now out there proclaiming. And look what he goes on to say in chapter 3 and verse 10. He's preaching this mystery hidden in God for ages in God who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church, the man, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And Paul wants us to understand the great love that the Lord has shown us and uniting us to his son, and thus to one another. And so he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he knows the Lord will answer this and so he gives a benediction on that. Now to him who is able to do more, far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, do what? Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Do you hear how high the calling is? Urge you to walk in a manner. That's your calling. The love of God the Father has moved him to graciously save you in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he has saved you into a new creation in Christ, which is displayed in the church. There is no such thing as churchless Christianity. It does not exist. There is no salvation outside the church precisely because there is no salvation outside of the body of Christ of which he is the head. We've been united to him and therefore to one another. So please hear this. As we talk about walking worthy in the church as a result of the gospel, there is no such thing as an unreconciled Christian. Christians are reconciled to one another. 
You're reconciled in Christ. So now walk worthy of that. As Christians, you're not hoping to one day be reconciled to your brother and sister in Christ. You are now, presently, reconciled them to them in Christ, and so you're supposed to live consistently with that. You're supposed to walk worthy of that. If you think I'm overstating the case, look at how Paul reminds the church of this unity they now have in Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. In case you didn't catch it so far, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Clear enough? Seven times. One, one, one. You have unity in Christ now. I'm not sure if he could be more emphatic than he has been. So let me ask you something, saints. Look around the room and recognize that every single person in here is a sinner. Every single one of us. And I'm sure that some of these folks in here have sinned against you. Confident of that. I know that I know that all of these folks in here have sinned grievously against the Lord. Confident of that. Yet Christ has reconciled them to God and to you. Christ has reconciled them to God and to you. It does not matter how great their sin has been. The the blood of Christ is greater still. The reconciling power of the Holy Spirit in in uniting you and them to Christ is greater still. You and they have been elected of the Father, blood bought by the Son, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There is your unity and your reconciliation. Who are we to ever speak ill of one another? We must grasp that. We must. Now, how do we walk worthy of such a high calling? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 answers that question. I'm not going to preach all three chapters this morning. You know better. But I just want to look at five modifiers that Paul attaches to walking worthy to give shape to what it looks like, just briefly. So let's take each in turn. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. First modifier, verse 2 of chapter 4, with all humility. With all humility. What is humility? What is it? It is not an aesthetic. I want to be clear about this. It's not a feeling that you get from someone. They just they feel so humble to me. Who cares? So what? It's a virtue. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's first knowing, humility is first knowing who God is. Isaiah chapter 66, listen to what's said there. Isaiah chapter 66, you want to hear some definition of humility. In verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you'd build for me? 
And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know what humility is? Humility is to know who God is, that he is the creator of all things, and that what he says matters a whole lot more than what you ever think. That you tremble at his word, that you recognize he's the creator, you're the creature, and what he says here outweighs everything, infinitely outweighs every opinion you have. So your mouth is stopped before the word of God. That's humility. Second, humility is knowing what God has done for you in Christ. Recognizing you're a sinner. That Christ condescended to save you. And you see that clearly in Philippians 2, 5 and following, you know, um, where, Paul, where Paul talks about how Christ considered others more important than himself. And so what did he do? Being in the very form of God, in very nature God, he took to himself the form of a man, the nature of man, and humbled himself, becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. That's humility. That's humility, considering others more important than yourself, recognizing your sin and your need for Christ to condescend to save you, recognizing who God is and what his word is, that's humility. Knowing how, who, knowing really who you are and how kind God has been to you, how Jesus forgave you, how he put you before himself, and then forgiving others, put them, you forgive others and you put them before yourself. That's humility. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Here's a display of a lack of humility. Matthew chapter 18 what Jesus has to say about it. Following this passage on church discipline in Matthew 18, Peter asks a question about sin being committed and how much we have to forgive. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Seems like a pretty generous offer. Seven times. Most of us, you can't get back past two or three. We're like three strikes and you're out. Like life is baseball or something. It isn't, folks. It's not how it works. As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, which you'll do the math, 490. The point isn't when I get to 491, I can stop forgiving. Whoop, he went over 490, sorry. That's not what he's getting at. Every time your brother asks you for forgiveness, you forgive him. But how do I know if they're really repentant? They've come to you, they've confessed their sins, they've asked for forgiveness. You forgive them. 
You don't know if they're repentant. And I'll tell you, someone who has to come to you 489 times doesn't seem too repentant. You don't know. Look what he goes on to tell a parable. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Notice this. The the context of this, this parable is the kingdom of heaven. So we know the king is representing the father, is representing God. Kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. That would be us. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This, this is so much money that no man can accumulate that kind of wealth in his lifetime. The point is, it's an infinite debt. His debt is so great against the king, he could never possibly hope to repay it, ever. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since, verse 25, and since he could not pay... Couldn't possibly repay this debt. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. See, that's what the Lord does for you. You owe him an infinite debt for your sin, a debt you could never repay. And out of pity for you, the Lord forgives your debt, wipes it clean because of the work of his son. Now look what he goes on to say. Verse 27, or excuse me, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, the one who just was forgiven the infinite debt, when he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, that, that's maybe, maybe a third of the year's wages, maybe. It's a big debt, third of the year. Big debt, not infinite, not 10,000 talents. Owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, listen to Jesus' application of this parable. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart the point of the parable? The point of the parable isn't you were saved and you lost your salvation. Don't press parables too far. The point of the parable is forgiven people forgive. People who understand the grace shown to them 
who've been born again by the Holy Spirit and know the forgiveness that's been shown to them, they offer that forgiveness to others. And listen, if you are obstinately refusing to forgive others, the point of the parable is you're going to hell. Do you hear that? It's really clear. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, their sins, their, if you will, transgressions against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Because a forgiven person is one who forgives. This isn't a condition that comes antecedent to justification or that comes antecedent to, comes before justification. This is a condition that is a consequence of regeneration and justification or being born again. If you have been saved and forgiven, then you are the kind of person who forgives. If you don't forgive, then you're the kind of person who hasn't been saved and forgiven. Look what he goes on to say. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, verse 15 of chapter 6, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, I know we fear forgiving people because we fear that we cannot trust the other person. I'm afraid that that person will offend me again and again. And again, I don't know if their repentance is sincere. They've confessed it. They've asked for forgiveness. But how do I know they won't do it again? Listen, you might not be able to trust that other person, but, but you can trust Jesus' word. You can. And Jesus says, he'll send you to hell. Trust that. Trust that. Fear that. Don't fear those who can hurt the body, but fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. Fear him. Yeah, I might be afraid that my brother in Christ will offend me again, so I'm afraid to offer forgiveness, but I ought to be more afraid that if I'm not the kind of person who forgives, then I may not be forgiven, and I'll go to hell. That ought to cause more fear in me than whether or not they'll offend me again. Jesus says that. He says that. Say, well, that sounds legalistic. No. Jesus and I are not saying you are forgiven on the basis of on the basis of your ability to forgive. Jesus is saying that forgiven people forgive. And if you're not forgiving, then you're probably not forget forgiven. Jesus humbled himself for our sakes, offered forgiveness to us, and thus we should do so for others. We should do so for others. Do you remember when um, the man walked in a few years ago to the Amish, an Amish schoolhouse and locked the door to the schoolhouse and began slaughtering all those children? The, the horrific scene. 
the sort of terror and horror and devastating grief for the Amish community that happened there that day. I also remember that, and I remember as the world nearly stood in awe, really without a word to utter, when those Amish parents whose children had been slaughtered went and sought out the parents of the man who slaughtered their children and cared for them. Cared for them. They offered forgiveness and kindness to them. They put them above themselves. Friends, that's the fruit of being forgiven. Forgiven people know they're forgiven and they forgive, especially their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Especially their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Second, Ephesians 4.2. We'll move to these other ones more quickly, I promise. Ephesians 4.2. If you're going to walk worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility. Second, and gentleness. And gentleness, with all gentleness. Gentleness is probably best described as kindness and tenderness. The idea of you could crush some object, but you're gentle with it. You're gentle with it. You know when you're teaching your children, be gentle, be gentle. You know they have the strength to take that little thing and just crush it. Be gentle. You could crush someone's spirit, but you're gentle with them. That doesn't mean you never say hard things. Please don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean you don't bring discipline that's painful. It means you do so with the goal of restoring and strengthening, not with the goal of crushing and destroying. Think of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly growing or burning, sorry, faintly burning wick he will not He will not snuff out. Jesus is gentle. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't point out sin. He bruised the reed, but he didn't break the reed. Richard Sibbs says that he bruised the reed so that he knows he's not an oak. When we lovingly discipline our children, we are gently, though painfully, Correcting them to restore them, not to crush them. The Father does the same with us. He disciplines the sons he loves. And though, Hebrews 12 says, it's painful for a time, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the same goal with church discipline, incidentally. Listen how Paul talks about that in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. There's humility and gentleness coming together. God has been gentle with us and we should be gentle with one another. Look at the next modifier that Paul gives in Ephesians 4.2 where he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. So what is patience? Patience is suffering for a long time. Sometimes we just say long-suffering. 
suffering someone who pains you in some way for a long time. Who in here has God not been patient with? God has been patient with mankind. Why? 2 Peter 3.9 says that he's patient that we should reach repentance. And we should be patient for the same reason. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, listen to how it says that we ought to treat one another. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, rebuke the idle, those who won't work, those who won't exercise any self-discipline, if you will. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. You're building up those who are putting forth the effort, but are struggling. They're faint of heart. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. These are the kind of folks you nearly have to carry. Help the weak. Now look what he goes on to say. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. So we need to have humility, gentleness, patience with one another. That's what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. The calling to which we've been called. For bearing with one at the fourth one. Look at Ephesians 4, 2 again. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Another way of translating this might be putting up with one another in love. Enduring with one another in love. What does that assume? I've said this before. I don't show up at the door with flowers for my wife on Valentine's Day and say, I've been enduring you in love. Okay? Right? We all understand. If I were to say I've been bearing with you in love or enduring you or putting up with you, it's probably not going to be a very romantic moment. She's probably not going to feel super good about that moment, right? Now, that's not the reality of my marriage, but it is reality in some relationships. Some relationships are not easy for you. What's the command? Write them off? Walk away from them? Talk smack about them? Look for everything you can find that's wrong with them and critique it? Tell your neighbors about how they irritate you? Is that the command? Bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. Endure with one another. Listen, who has God not been bearing with in love in this room? Whom? Listen, folks, God isn't looking down from heaven saying, now that person's a real prize. I'll go save them. He didn't just, he didn't, and this is, you know, I think Sinclair Ferguson said this. He didn't save you just as you are, but in spite of who you are. And we should bear with others in love. But that person's hard for me. You don't understand what an affront to me their sin is. What an affront to me their attitude is. What an affront to me their their very presence is. Well, friends, God is holy, holy, holy. And you don't think you're an absolutely intolerable affront to him? Of course you are. And so am I. Yet God loves you. God's patient with you. 
God saves you. God bears with you. So get over yourself. Get over yourself. Be humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. That person irritates me. Well, you irritate somebody, guaranteed. So get over yourself. And look at Ephesians 4. Actually, just go to, go to Colossians. It, it says the same thing in Ephesians and Colossians, but it says it more quickly in Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter 3, just for the sake of time. And verse 12 Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Look, these are commands that belong to the new creation in Christ. They're not options. They're commands. And those who know the Lord are fighting to keep them. I'm not saying we're always succeeding at keeping them, but we're fighting to keep them. And by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us, hopefully we are keeping them more fully every day. But they're commands. You realize you don't have the option to stop being patient with someone who's a brother in Christ. You don't have the option to stop bearing with one another in love. You don't have the option to be prideful with regard to someone else. You don't have the option to not forgive. It's a command. It's a command. You're either being obedient or disobedient. You're walking worthy of the gospel or you're not. Fifth, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. You're buried with one another in love. Fifth modifier says there, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. That word maintain can also be defined as guard, defend, protect. You're protecting the unity. You're not only supposed to be protecting the unity you have. Notice that you don't maintain something that doesn't already exist. You don't guard or protect something that doesn't already exist. It's there by the Spirit. You are united by the Spirit to Christ and therefore to one another. And you're to be eager to guard, protect, defend, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's a command. Eager to maintain it. You're united to others in Christ. You are reconciled to your brother and sister in Christ. Now live consistently with that. So here's the question. Are you eager to maintain the unity of the church? Are you as eager to do that as you are to entertain and spread gossip and slander? Are you pursuing with all that you are in obedience to God's command? In light of the glorious gospel of grace in Christ, protecting and defending the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Or 
Are you interested in expressing your irritation and dislike and the nasty things you've heard about other people to others? Are you as eager to guard the unity of Christ's body as you are to seek vindication for an offense? That person irritated me. I'm going to get mine. It matters. Listen, the church is not an administer of or an ambassador of God's justice. The state is, and eventually, at Christ's return, we will be with him. But in this current era, we're an ambassador of God's reconciling grace. We pronounce the good news that God saved a sinner like me in his son Jesus. And we then love others, forgive others, put others above ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we've been radically saved as a gift of the Father in the Son and by the Holy Spirit. So let us walk worthy of that by eagerly guarding our unity in the Spirit. Let us reject utterly reject all gossip and slander. You shouldn't want to entertain it, and you shouldn't want to spread it. May we reject all pride and impatience and hatred. Let us love one another with hearts full of thanksgiving for the grace of God shown to us. And may we rejoice in that grace and that show that same grace to one another and to all. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your son would be exalted in his church, his body, his bride. We're thankful that your spirit has given us eyes to see and ears to hear, that he's given us hearts to believe, that we that we know him, we know your son, that we've been united to him through faith, forgiven of our sins, declared righteous, adopted as sons. That your spirit is at work in us. He's not only made us a new creation, but he is more and more conforming us to the image of your son, who is the glory of God. May we walk consistently with this gospel, walk worthy of it. May we live in such a way that we understand our unity in Christ and with one another by the Spirit through faith. Humble us, cause us to be gentle and patient cause us to bear with one another in love, cause us to be eager to protect the unity of the church. Father, cause us to, by your Spirit, reject gossip and slander and bitterness and wrath and malice and all of these ungodly, worldly responses that we have Help us to walk in love and compassion and gentleness and kindness, humility with thanksgiving in our hearts. Forgiving others as you have forgiven us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.